Hey, Shadows listeners. If you're looking to make some extra income that also impacts people, then you need to look at becoming a certified leadership coach with Giant. If you don't already know, Giant has been in the leadership space for over 13 years. I got certified through Giant in 2018, and I've been teaching ever since. Just to give you some context, they used to own and operate the John Maxwell brands. They ran the LeaderCast conferences where Jim Collins, Henry Cloud, Malcolm Gladwell, and Simon Sinek, just to name a few, were regular speakers. They have over 500 coaches worldwide, working in over 127 countries, and are being hired by companies like Google, Chick-fil-A, Pfizer, Delta, and more. And yes, you can do this too. I know this might sound intimidating, but Giant will literally give you everything you need to start your own coaching business from scratch. You get hands-on training from top-level coaches to learn the exact methodology and tools that six-figure coaches are using. You get an all-in-one online platform to run your entire coaching business, even if you want to work 100% remotely. And you'll get to join a thriving community of coaches from all around the world. To get started, Giant is hosting a coaching business workshop to help you learn the ins and outs of how to build a successful coaching business. This is both for experienced coaches, consultants, and those who are looking to start coaching and consulting with little to no experience. If you want to hear the really good news, this whole workshop, it's free, 100% free. And you can reserve your spot by going to giant.tv forward slash shadows. Why not give it a shot? What's better than making a positive change in people's lives and making some extra money in the process? Giant launches a new hiring cohort every month. Now, they only have 20 coaching slots available each month. So it's first come, first serve. So go ahead and make sure you reserve your spot. If you're ready to make an impact and get paid doing it, go to giant.tv forward slash shadows, giant.tv forward slash shadows. Hi, my name is Angela Winner, and I'm a PME instructor for the United States Air Force. And I'm also a guest on season one, episode four of Rise of the Shadows. And you are listening to the Shadows Podcast. All right, I want to welcome everybody to another episode of The Shadows Podcast. I'm your host, Trip Odenheimer, and I am happy to be joined today by Daniel Harris. He has uh, He's an armed services veteran with 30 plus years of service, 10 years in reserve, 20 years active duty, CEO of Muddy Boots Leadership, author of On Guard, The Four Pillars of Leadership. Sir, welcome to The Shadows Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bodie. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, definitely opened up the book. Great read. Uh, definitely recommend to everybody. We're going to talk a little bit about that as we go throughout this episode. However, we're going to talk about the person, Daniel Harris. We're going to find out a little bit about him, and we're going to get started with some rapid fire questions. So first one for you. You ready, sir? Yes, I am. What is one thing you want to do or see before you die? Actually, there are two things. Uh, I would like to meet everyone in the world, and I would like to read every book there that's been published. It's not possible, and I know that, but uh, that's my aim. I'm working on it. 
Okay. Yeah. I just, I was talking to someone today and we were talking about all the books we've got to read that we haven't even been able to crack open yet. And it's like, I just need a week on a beach just to sit back and get caught up. All right. So what is something, what is something on your to-do list that never seems to get done? Oh my, it's, um, there are only 24 hours in the day and, uh, I've been praying and asking for more hours and I keep getting the answer that says, Nope, you're not getting any more. This is it. It's 24. Yep. <laughs> you get 24 and I keep arguing and bargaining, trying to get more. I did get a, a solution of how to get more hours, which is to find others and who are not using theirs and, uh, you know, have them use theirs on you. So I couldn't get more hours, but I figured out how to still accomplish what I needed to do. But in terms of something that I never seem to, uh, to, to, to get done uh, within a day, it's, um, it's really my, my writing and, uh, you know, and reading. It's, it always goes, flows into the next day. And I guess that's kind of a good thing, but uh, that, that's an ongoing, never ending uh, process. And of course, it's the learning that's involved that, that keeps me keeps me uh, enchanted. Yeah. I'd say mine's probably finishing a book. I, I can, I always seem to get all the way through one and then another one seems to be calling for me. So if you could try out for a job for a day, just to see what it's like, what job would you choose? That's an interesting one. Perhaps being president of the United States. Really? Okay. I'd, um, I'd be interested in a number of things. You know, um, any man can withstand adversity, can get through that. Okay, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And instead of pointing fingers and always finding fault and blame at who's at the top, um, I'd, I'd like to see if the saying, you know, I'm sure you've seen the quote that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, I want to test my character. It's interesting. It's something I hadn't really thought about, but yeah, that's a good point. Okay. So you survived the rapid fire questions. Now we're going to start diving into to you as the person. So, sir, if you don't mind, you know, for someone who has, who's not familiar with you, Tell them us a little bit about your upbringing. Okay. I, as you know, last October, I published uh, the book On Guard, The Four Pillars of Leadership. And um, I've always wanted to write a book about leadership because it's one of the things, and I think it's the last frontier that's going to help unlock and allow people or a team to, to bring their best self to whatever it is they're doing. So that uh, the published it was published last October. And just uh, towards the beginning of, of the, the publication process, going back, uh, as you mentioned, 30 years I had served uh, in the US military in, uh, in the National Guard, both on the reserve side and active. I enjoyed that tremendously, great experience, great ride. Would do it again anytime if asked, no, no doubt about it at all. It's, it's, it's unquestionable. So enjoy that tremendously. 
just going back to that, my family emigrated to the U.S. from uh, the Republic of Liberia in 1977, February. Uh, we landed at JFK Airport at 5 p.m. and it was snowing. I was about 15 years old, never encountered snow in my, snow in my life. And of course, I'd never been to the United States with my, uh, my brother, sister, and mom. My father was already here uh, since 1970, mm-hmm. going to school, uh, studying at Union Theological Seminary and also at Fordham. Yeah. Um, he was a Coptic Orthodox priest. And so the family uh, arrived in uh, New York City in uh, February of 1977, lived in, in Manhattan, in Harlem, uh, dad in dad's uh, one-bedroom apartment for a couple of months. And then in April, we moved to Staten Island and uh, kind of settled down, which uh, a space that was much more um, residential versus New York City, and uh, started, started life there. And uh, my, my American journey began. Uh, and it's been, it's been an exciting one. What was the toughest part of that transition for you? I tell you, it was a number of things. Um, first of all, it, it was not like anything we had seen on television or looked, seen in books or movies. Okay. <laughs> Complete opposite. Uh, the people, um, seemed, we seemed to encounter a different set of Americans here in America than the Americans we encountered at home, who were members either, you know, the embassy staff who worked there or we encountered uh, through, you know, friends and colleagues of my parents, because we were, we were children, you know, younger at the time. And these people, uh, very open, very friendly, very outgoing. they, I mean, they'd join us in a game of soccer in a heartbeat. They'd roll up with their cars and if we were playing, they'd be out their cars and play with us, you know, and uh, would tell us stories. And even when they came back to the U.S. for vacation, they'd bring us gifts when they returned. Mm. You know, I remember getting this carpenter set. My brother got a doctor's set with a stethoscope and different things. They'd bring us candies. I mean, uh, uh, very, very uh, friendly. Um, but then arriving to America and living in Harlem and started our journey. And my brother and I did a total immersion. We wanted to be Americans. Mm-hmm. And every television, radio, magazine, uh, everything we could get our hands on, we, we couldn't get enough of this. Yeah. Um, and if you recall, I don't know if you've uh, ever been in New York City, that time the subways were, uh, uh, lots of graffiti, dirty. Um, you know, the city was was undergoing a change at that time in the late seventies. It yeah. wasn't. It's was kind of a scary and exciting place all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, then encountered, of course, uh, you know, racism, <laughs> and 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 the comments and the, the 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 views, the perspectives, and so on and so forth. So that was very very new. Had no experience about that. Had, had never even came up as a conversation before arriving in America. So that was, that was interesting. Yeah. You told a story in your book about uh, an incident that had happened on the subway and, and cause you were, you were riding the subway back and forth, correct. And then an incident happened with a uh, subway vigilante. Yes. And in fact, that was uh, that was a scary moment, but at the same time, I think it brought out something that many New Yorkers were feeling at the time. 
there's a combination of fear and, uh, uh, you know, I have to fend for myself, not having to trust that the police will be able to, to take care of you. The, you know, there's this us and them. So lots of things happening all about at the same time. And this was daily as people rode the subway. Uh, the subways, like I said, used to be, now it's 180 degrees, complete opposite. Yeah. Uh, we're dirty. You would often time be sitting in a subway car where as it's running through the tunnels, um, the lights would go out and you would sit in that car, in a dark subway car for, you know, for a considerable period of time until the lights would come back on. Uh, the cars were, were, were not well maintained, the tracks, you, there were quite a few stories of, uh, new stories of trains jumping the tracks uh, due to lack of maintenance and so on and so forth, yeah. So it was, um, it was an interesting time, interesting time to say the least. And when you're young, like 15 years old, when, as you were, whenever you came over to the States, it's kind of a vulnerable age for an individual because you know, brain's still developing, your, your, your body's still growing. And a lot of times in situations like that, uh, we tend to go down a different path than, uh, you know, we typically would. What do you think it was that kept you going on that, that right path? Oh, a number of things. Uh, family, first of all, our family was very close knit with dad, mom, my brother, sister. Um, number of, you know, the fact that we had just arrived here, so we didn't know anyone else, right? Yeah. So we had to hold on to each other. And uh, uh, additionally, mom and dad really kept a close eye on us and a watchful eye. Uh, in Liberia, our lives were fairly were structured pretty pretty well. Um, it was, you wake up, go to school, return, homework, tutors, dinner, play for a little bit of time, come back in, dad was home, we watched television, and even that was structured with the news. <laughs> but the television station was open at 6 p.m. and it shut down at 11. So in that time was two hours of news. So imagine what else you got. So when we came over here, that structure pretty much continued. And it was not a question, we didn't, it was not a, a thing of a question of rebelling. Uh, in addition to that, when we went to school, the, uh, you know, we met people who pretty much took us under their wings. I can, I can say for myself, and that was uh, tremendously helpful, you know, kind of kept a watchful eye. Mm -hmm. uh, which told us what right looks like, you know, don't do that, stay away from that person, <laughs> and so on and so forth. So between my family and the teachers, counselors, and others I met at school, you know, and, and members at church, that community kept us pretty much shielded. Um, even as we continued our development, growth and development, and then started to branch out and, and go into the you know, out into the country and meet more people. Speaking of those influential people, you claim in your book that, you know, everybody started calling you the science guy with the science fairs uh, and everything going on with that at your school. And one person that you mentioned in there who was very influential in your development was uh, Curtis High School biology teacher, Mr. Ryan. Uh, let our audience know what Mr. Ryan meant to the development of Daniel Harris. I tell you, um, and just now when you mentioned his name, Bodhi, I got, uh, I got 
you know, chills in my, in, in my uh, veins about the man. Uh, tremendous respect and, and admiration for, for him. Uh, he was a Vietnam vet um, and had uh, a war prosthetic in one leg. And um, he took me at face value, I felt. And, um, you know, got me exposed to this world of science, which I liked reading, but growing up at home and did not have the exposure uh, of actually sitting in a lab to do anything versus sitting in a classroom with a book and picturing what reactions would look like. You know, uh, for example, you mix potassium and water, you get this, you know, orangey dark color. Well, you have to imagine that <laughs> when you're not yeah. in a lab, right? But here you are in a lab, you can actually mix it and see it. Um, but um, Mr. Ryan really uh, was became my anchor and someone that I kind of looked up to almost you know, like another father figure. Um, he would actually call me at home in the morning, you know, Danny, you up? And, uh, you know, 6.30, you know, 6 o'clock. And I would go, yes, Mr. Ryan, I'm up now. And he says, okay, good. See you in school in 45 minutes. And I, I mean, the covers would come flying off. And there was just this desire to meet this man and do the things that he told me to do. Uh, there was an anxiety uh, there about it. And I would rush up to the school and he'd be pulling up and we'd get up to the lab and, and we'd start to you know, do the experiments and he would raise questions and he would look at things, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, anything I needed, somehow the department miraculously made it happen. Uh, one day, because I hung around the, the department so much, I, I just became like a, you know, like an icon there. Um, I wasn't allowed in the teacher's lounge, but the door was open this one day and I was doing something and I heard them talking and uh, the chairman, Mr. Baki <clears throat> and his brother, both of them were in the science department. And I heard, I overheard him saying, you know, gosh, man, this, this kid, one of these days, I'm going to get hauled off to jail. You know, he, he, he asked, he demands, he, you know, he's requesting this stuff. I don't know. I don't know where he gets these ideas from, um, but he would figure out in the budget and, and get me these things, whatever it was. And I'm, and I'm talking some pretty expensive things, which yeah. again, I had no idea about. I just knew I needed these things and they showed up. You know, I needed microtomes, I needed termites, I needed uh, uh, some, some molecules because we didn't have uh, automation back then as we do today where I can pull up a molecule on, on a monitor and manipulate it and move things around. So I needed all of this stuff. And um, I requested it and showed up. <laughs> so um, that, that, was, that was an eye-opener. Um, never paid much attention to it, the whole idea of budgets and so on, because as a science department You're young, you didn't care. Yeah, I didn't care, you know. All I knew is I needed uh, I, I needed some 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 frozen termites and I needed some microtomes and I needed uh, this this tool on how to manipulate and, and special sets of microscopes and it just showed up. Uh, so between my house, the third floor of my uh, parents' house and the school lab is where I did a lot of my work. And I remember Mr. Ryan in, in one of the lectures one day was saying that. Uh, he defines something of what an American is. And I don't, you know, he would often go off mm -hmm. into, uh, away from biology, 
you know, just talking about philosophy and a number of things. He got me to read, or got the class to read, you know, Think and Grow Rich. I remember we read it uh, you know, at that time. Um, he even, uh, uh, we read a number of other books which were not biology related. But this one afternoon, he said, you know, and I'll never forget this. He said, an American is not a person. He says, no, an American is a way of being, is a way of life. Mm. And he talked about freedoms and he talked about uh, being helpful. He talked about hardworking. Uh, he talked about, um, you know, all of these attributes that, and I, I sat there and I said, geez, you know, I guess I must have always been an American, but this was, you know, to the class. Yeah. yeah. Um, through his efforts, I mean, we were successful by my junior year. Uh, we won, won quite a bit of science fair and quite a bit of money <laughs> added yeah. at the same time with uh, the news uh, uh, paper guys coming and interviewing both at school and at home. Television interviews were on CBS. I know we're on uh, Channel 13 a couple of times, daily news, uh, newspapers, um, through, you know, through his efforts. And so at graduation, there was all this accolades and uh, something interesting that Mr. Baki, the chairman, got up and said words, you know, 400, class of 400 plus graduates. I wasn't the valedictorian, but I kept going up to the stage for all of these awards because I also ran track. Um, I love, love uh, running. Um, and Mr. Baki got up and he said, you know, I want to share this with the parents. He said, you know, I know some of you probably just got sick and tired of hearing Danny Harris's name called time and time again for all these awards. He says, I just want to share with you all that we didn't do anything special for him that we didn't do for all the children. He says, everything that we did for him, we did for all of the other sons and daughters sitting here. The only difference is this young man listens. And I thought that was, that was interesting. I never, I never thought about it before. He said, he listened. He did everything we told him to do. And the result is here we are. So uh, thanks, listening thanks is, for the story. Yeah, listening is such an underrated thing. And we all do it every day, but very few people truly listen to others. Yeah, Mr. Ryan, what you said about him was remarkable. I actually have a teacher, Mr. Burton, who was my fifth grade history teacher. And I always tell the students that come through, you know, I remember him, but I don't remember 90% of the other teachers I had. So be that person. And leadership's the same way. We all have leaders, but you know, who's that Mr. Ryan in your life? And yeah. You didn't stop there doing remarkable stuff. You, you're like, you know what, let's pick up German as well. Uh, how did that go? Well, um, so it wasn't really only Mr. Ryan. You know, I had the Backy brothers, you know, the Sherman. And then I had Mr. Scheiper uh, 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 for German. And again, through science, I ended up getting to meet him. And he said, you know, um, there are lots of interesting, of course, I I knew lots of the the history of science and and uh, you know and 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 you know and German, um, and he says you know I have lots of experiments uh, that you would probably be interested in, but they're in German, and if you want, and I'll give them to you, but you have to learn German. <laughs> so I started learning German. I ended up uh, taking several uh, several years of it, and I even continued with it uh, through college. Um, Not an easy language. No, it's not. No, it's not. But uh, once you learn the fundamentals, just like anything, there are the there's the foundation, and you mm -hmm. spend time mastering the fundamentals and the foundation, 
getting a strong uh, sense of the foundation, and then you can build up from there. Mm. So uh, that that was exciting, and uh, again, continue to expand my my you know periphery on on uh, just just life in America. Um, so you know, those Mr. Scheiper, uh, most of my time was there in in the you know in the science uh, web. On the on on the track field, there was uh, you know Mr. Shane. Uh, we used to call him Dick Tracy. You know, he stood on the track. <laughs> in his you know he had on. It didn't matter what the temperature was. He had that hat that he had on his coat. Was it yellow? <laughs> Uh, it's it's uh, the same the same khaki style coat, you know. Yeah. Called Dick Tracy, and he'd be on there with his clock, you know, and his, and his stopwatch, <laughs> you know, run it again and run it again, and so, uh, so and and you know, a typical workout, just to give you an idea, was, um, you know, we do our mile warm up, and then we'd start to do the fartleks, the speed work, you know, four hundred. We do about six of those, and then. You know, the, the 800s, we do three of those. And then the mm-hmm. miles, we do four of those. And then we'd go out for a long distance slow run. And I remember once the, the principal uh, telling him, you know, these kids, uh, we were covering about 130 miles per week. And the principal was telling him, I don't drive my car 130 miles a yeah. week. You can't have these kids ride 130 miles a week. But we never thought about it. We just we just did it because that was mm-hmm. the that was the work routine to include you know Saturdays, and the result was I mean we made the pen relays uh, qualified and, and entered pen relays uh, you know all all the years when I was at, at Curtis, so a combination of all these people and the exposure yeah. was just uh, was just tremendous and I think I was fortunate to fall you know in the line of sight of these people. And of course, that experience led me in my junior year to working at Institute for Basic Research, where I started to do real experiments uh, uh, with Dr. Georgia Levis, uh, a beautiful lady, great heart. Um, now she's uh, she's deceased now, but another experience that uh, you know was just priceless for me and helped to to, to really get me to where I'm at today. Yeah, I mean that is a incredible journey, incredible role models. My my German that I became very uh, fluent with was Sprechense English, and that <laughs> that that kind of that got well, me pretty far when we're traveling. Well, I'll tell you, uh, even the pronunciation. So, Mr. Scheiper was such a stickler for the pronunciation. He would talk about North and South German. Right. Yeah, and it's different. So, it's really different. Yep. He goes, you know, uh, uh, and, and, you know, people from the South, they speak Ploidish. It's not German. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, I think we were in, we were in Berlin or Ham. I think we were in Hamburg and yeah. we, my wife or somebody, we went up and, and made a comment to someone and they kind of like turned their nose up at us. And they're like, basically they said, you speak like dirty German, Southern German is I think what they were calling it. Um, I was like, wow. Yeah, you need to you need to speak uh, uh, the German from Bavaria, you know, north, you know. Yeah. So it would be, you know, your 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 diction should be Sprechen, Sprechen Sie, Sprechen Sie, you know, Sprechen Sie Deutsch. <laughs> I was saying it too nice. I was saying it too nice, I think is what it was. So next part of your journey, what is it that made you decide 
I'm going to raise my right hand to join the military. Interesting story there, uh, Bodhi. And my brother and I were leaving Liberia to, to emigrate to the US with, uh, this, you know, with mom. My grandfather, Pedro, uh, called us and he uh, said, boys, you know, you're, you're going to another country. Uh, again, you know, we gotta remember our family was always very close knit. And he said, I don't know that I, if I'll ever see you boys again, um, but um, I have two things for you. He's, and the first was his Bible. He says, in this book lies all of the answers to every question you will ever have about anything. And he gave, and he, he handed the Bible to me for Peter and I. And my, my, my brother Peter is now deceased as well. And the second thing he, he shared with us was, um, he said, wherever you find yourselves, okay, make sure that you serve in your country's military. That is the greatest honor that you can give to your country. So I had that parked back there somewhere in my mind and when we left and came uh, and arrived here in the US. And so in 1988, um, uh, with an affinity for old buildings and New York City has many majestic old buildings, including include the armories, you know. Um, I was conducting, I was doing research at the time at the Black Building at uh, Columbia University, the, the medical school up on 168th Street. And during one of my long centrifuge spins, you know, separating out proteins, that goes on for hours at very high speeds. I decided to go out and get some air and look around. The next thing I know, I was in this armory building, which was right across the street. And before I left there, I was signing papers. <laughs> now that is a, is, is a good recruiter, okay? I, I no kidding. In, he got looking, you. <laughs> you know, looking at the ceiling and admiring the walls and, 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 and you know, these marble floors. And next thing I know, I'm signing papers. <laughs> Got a t-shirt and a hat and everything to go along with it. The whole nine yards and scheduling to go off to, um, you know, to Fort Leonard Wood, uh, Missouri for, for uh, basic training in AIT. And you were, you were 26 years old when you joined too, right? Yes. I, I was yes. 28 and I was called, I, I noticed in your book, you said they called you the old man. I, I was referred to, I was ancient because I was 28 years old when I went through basic That's training. That's right. So you and I share many of the same experiences then. <laughs> However, uh, you know, this, this old, old man, you know, I, I outran, out push up, out sit up, you know, a lot of these young guys who go around there and, um, had uh, developed a, 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 a relationship, a res profound respect for, for the drill sergeants. Yeah. Um, till this day, even though I've now retired and I look back, uh, these, these people are really unsung heroes. You know, they mm -hmm. go back to doing their jobs. But when you think about what they do to take a civilian young man or woman and put them through the paces to have them graduate and, and, and become you know, the soldier in, in, in transformed in the, the greatest military in the world. Uh, tremendous. Uh, yeah. we, I don't think we can, we can thank them enough. We cannot acknowledge them enough. And, uh, you know, for the most part, they will, they will just assume, let things be quiet. <laughs> they don't want to, be, they don't want the attention. They don't want that, that, that light on them. But, um, 
having those people with those set of values and that outlook and you know that strength and and focus uh, helps tremendously. And sure, and I'm sure you know there not everyone makes it through basic training, but a large number do mm-hmm. succeed. Greater than ninety nine percent, and uh, this is this speaks in large part to their uh, coaching, mentoring approach, uh, their teaching, and just just being there. They know people, you know. Yeah, I think this this episode is becoming like unsung heroes. Uh, of, of people who've been influential in, in your life. And I, I still remember my, I, well, take that back. I, I see what you're saying, because when I came in, I was older. I had more appreciation for my TI than I would have if I was 19 years old. I think if I was 19 years old, I would have hated my TI. But I kind of got it being that, you know, I had a little bit more age under my belt. And I actually still keep up with mine on social media. He just retired not too long ago. He was a phenomenal um, MTI for me, Trevor Gilliland. Um, and I, it was actually pretty cool. I got to watch his graduation or graduation. I got to watch his retirement ceremony virtually because of the, the pandemic that we're going through. But yeah, yeah, it's a it's a tough, tough journey. So what were the first couple of years like for you in the military? It's uh, well, when I completed Basic training in AIT came back to the unit. Of course, now I'm in a company headquarters a specialist E3. <laughs> uh, no, no, uh, a PFC, private first class, and then I quickly got promoted to uh, to an E4 specialist. Um, and I remember, and again, you know, was, I'm, I'm in the country, you know, less than ten years. Okay. And so much is still new and, and exciting and unfolding and unraveling for me. And um, my company commander was another individual, uh, Dan McNally, that uh, left a tremendous impression on me, him and uh, the first sergeant. And so when I came into, to showed up to the unit and started to do my, my, my drills, this was on, on, on the M-Day status, so once a month, and twice, uh, you know, two weeks, three weeks out of the, the year, and maybe some other missions in between. But uh, primarily, you're still a civilian, and you know you you get involved or, or come in and report in for any types of special work that uh, you know that was scheduled, and you got paid for it as well. But a number of things happened that stuck in my mind when we came from uh, we returned from Fort Drum from an annual training. And, you know, it's a time when, you know, no one leaves, you do inventory and a bunch of different things. Um, But they found out that a nine millimeter weapon was missing, which is a big deal. I mean, the world stops, right? Because this is a military weapon and God forbid, you know, the the authorities find this weapon or, or it's involved in some you know, active shooter or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's just not a, it's just not a good thing. So I remember immediately uh, still not quite understanding what was taking place. uh, Shut down the entire armory. And the, uh, the the company commander, uh, Dan McNally. So his full-time job was as a New York city police officer. He he worked in the bomb squad. 
Okay, but they shut down the, the entire armory. He got all the his officers and uh, whoever the first sergeants, and he, he told me, "Listen, give me whatever cash you have." He collected all his cash from them, and he wrote them down and gave them all IOUs. And then he promptly put the word back out. He says, "Hey, you know, uh, there's somebody looking to buy buy a piece." Okay, so and he charged the same group to to go out there now as a E four. There were several of us, about four of us, who he, he kept around us to do his, you know, we did a lot of the documenting with the file folding and so on and so forth. He was always kind of like mentoring us to go become officers because we were, we were college students, but we, you know, we hadn't graduated and here we were, we were enlisted. So he would charge us with, with doing a lot of administrative kind of introducing us to what it is to become, you know, to be like a lieutenant. Um, but he did have, as a captain, he did have uh, the lieutenants, you know, uh, of the platoon. So he charged them with this. And sure enough, before the end of that day, that evening, uh, the person who had stolen this weapon made contact, <laughs> trying to sell it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he put the word out there, you know, I'm looking to spend about seven, eight hundred dollars. I want to buy a piece. And those guys put the word out throughout the unit. And this knucklehead uh, tried to make contact. And of course, he was caught. You know, we say criminals are not the smartest people walking around, right? Um, but then, it looked uh, better on paper. Yeah, exactly. So something like that, you know, stuck in my mind. And it was interesting the the the, the way Dan McNally approached that. Another uh, incident was him digging in his heels against a major who did not want to go to the range to qualify with his weapon. Headquarters company command has all of the senior folks in there, uh, in that, you know, in, in that company, because, you know, that commander and that first sergeant, they are responsible for all the administrative stuff for those people, even the, 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 the battalion commander, you know, and the battalion XO and, you know, all these other majors and, and, and uh, a lieutenant colonel. So he's a captain, but he's in charge of them administratively. And hitting your metrics is one of the things that he, as a company commander, was responsible for. Weapons qual, APFT, uh, you know, all of your medical, all of those things. So this major did not want to go to the range. And um, the captain dug in his heels. He said, listen, you need to go to the range and qualify with your nine mil. And if you don't, I'm not going to pay you and I'm going to alert the old man. Okay. And this may, it's for him. <laughs> there's a major and here's a captain and they're going at it. Right. Um, eventually the, the, the major got up and he stormed out and he went to the range, but I'll never forget what uh, captain McNally said. And he looked at uh, a donor, another uh, guy with me there and he says, you got to understand something. Leadership is not a popularity contest. You have to do what's right. And he stormed off and we went off <laughs> walking behind him. Um, and then, of course, uh, when I showed up to drill this one day, uh, they told me, hey, yeah, you, you, you need to go to OCS. They had completed all of my documentation. <laughs> and I think they even signed my name on papers. Uh, and I showed up to OCS and, uh, you know, Two years later, I got my commission. But, uh, and, and you had a very prestigious military career lasting over 30 plus years of service. If you were to define your career 
in one word, what word would you use? It's been exciting. Exciting. So that, that, that's the one word I, I'll say about it. What was that one moment where you're like, this is my purpose right here to do this? Well, um, when I became battalion commander, but um, so as you know, there are many years that lead up to that, but um, exciting because I'll, I'll share this with you, Bodhi. I never had one bad assignment or one bad experience, never did. Every single assignment and experience was, was great. And that, that's, that's just an awesome record. Every single one was, was, was awesome. I never had a bad assignment. You think oh, attitude has a lot to do with that too? Probably, probably. Yeah. But, um, you know, a number of things, because I was older, I already had a son, I had a mortgage, I was married. So my outlook, I think, was, was different. Um, and I, I wanted to serve. And it, did, it didn't matter that I was serving in the Army. I would go serve in the Coast Guard. If the army says, hey, we don't need you, I'll go for the Coast Guard. I will serve wherever. And, and my gosh, the United States has more than one branch of service that you can serve in. So, and it didn't matter that it was an army. I could have served in the Marines, Air Force, whichever one. I just happened to walk into that army that day and I signed for, for the National Guard. Um, so I went to the serve. And I think, so that may have framed my attitude going in, right? And then particularly as I learned um, later on, as I continued to, you know, to read and develop and grow um, and serving even in the officer ranks, mm -hmm. okay, you are responsible to do anything your senior leaders or your, your, your uh, leader tells you to do, except two things, right? Except two things. They cannot tell you to do something that's illegal and they cannot tell you to do something that is immoral. Yep. Okay. If you come, if, if, if you get an order about those two things, you can tell them to go pound sand. So put that to the side. Apart from that, anything else that comes down the, 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 the road, let's go. I'm ready. Because at the end of the day, everything uh, builds on readiness. And that's what we're about. That's what we get paid for. That's what those guys in this and gals in the suits, you know, up on, on Capitol Hill, you know, that's, that's what we get paid for. That's what the American people pay us for, to be ready. So um, school, physical uh, uh, stuff, um, learning, exercises, just, just go and do it. What's the problem? <laughs> Yeah. You're not being told to do anything that's illegal and you're not being told to do anything that is immoral. And oh, by the way, this contributes to both individual and collective readiness so that when you are called, you are fit and ready to go and execute your job to the best of your abilities. Now, who in the world is going to fight that? I think that's the problem so a lot is people, people, yeah, you, the immoral, uh, you know, the illegal part aside, I think a lot of people try to fight other things. And I think that's the problem. It's just a difference of opinion. I'm not going to do that as well. And I think that's where a lot of people 
get into, I hate this assignment. I hate this leadership. The next thing I want to bring up is this. So you finished your, your 30 plus years of service and then you've done something that I want to do still to this day. And it's not off of my bucket list, but you got a book, you got a book out there on guard, the four pillars of leadership for, I'm not going to spoil the book for our listeners. They'll have to go out and get one, but if you were to sum up the book for them, how would you do that? Well, uh, I want to draw your attention to the four pillars of leadership. And uh, it can be easily remembered using the acronym of CLIP, C-L-I-P, which stands for courage, love, integrity, and passion. So, with all of my experiences, I boiled it all down to leading uh, with a firm foundation uh, in those four pillars. And it all started with the with this concept that you know leadership, first of all, is getting people people to do what you want them to do without resorting to intimidation, humiliation, or fear. Right? That's not leading. That's bullying people and, and hitting them over the head. And, and it's assault. And you can get put in jail for that. <laughs> okay. But uh, while we, we can manage our processes, our assembly lines, and a fleet of cars, and buses, and construction projects, and whatever else we do, you manage those things. The people who are pulling those levers and pushing those buttons and doing those work, those people need to be led. Okay, you cannot manage people. And people need to be led because they're bringing people issues with them 24 seven, wherever they go. And a strong leader, an effective leader, a good leader, okay, is while you're leading the people, you're helping to manage those people issues that they bring with them. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, if you fail to address an issue with a team member or an employee or what have you, you fail to address whatever baggage they have, that's going to directly impact your mission. It's going to directly impact your objective. And if you don't believe me, give it a try. Let me know how that works out for you. Because I've seen it over and over. But to come back to CLIP, we know a lot about courage. We know about integrity. We know about, about passion. The love part is where I found myself talking a lot about. And people kind of say, love? It's kind of wonky. It's kind of jello-ish, you know? I thought that was the interesting one of the four. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's, what's, you know, what's this love? Well, effective leaders are lovers. I say leaders are lovers of people, okay? You cannot lead people if you don't love people, the human, the human person, right? I'm talking about brotherly love, agape love, not the love between a man and a woman, okay? And I'll tell you, when you look through it, history, effective leaders, and let's just start with an example, say Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. okay? and come on down to your Gandhi, to your Mother Teresa, to your Martin Luther King, and countless others throughout history, um, 
who have focused on the people aspect of the people of their leadership. Uh, that's that love where they they become so passionate about the people. It'll it'll cause them to fall on your sword, and 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 it's okay. They're all right with that. Um, of all those people that I mentioned, with the exception of Mother Teresa, many of them were assassinated, were killed. When you think about it, and why were they killed? They were killed for their message to people, their their desire to elevate people, to move them from where they met them and get them up to that next level. Um, that's that's the, the 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 love pillar. It allows for full engagement. It allows for bringing your best self. There is always room for improvement and getting better and better. Um, so, you know, and, and I can talk about that pillar you know, all day long, but um, to summarize the book, I will tell people to focus on those four pillars of CLIP as they are reading the book. And you'll see the countless examples uh, of, of, of that throughout the book in the offices that I mentioned and, and, and so on. And there, there are many others, but these, you know, these are stuck in my mind to include even NCOs. Uh, but again, you know, I was, I was focusing on, on, these, on these officers. Um, leadership is, is, is an exciting uh, uh, avenue because you, know, you are looking to, to elevate people and, and move them from the space that they, they're currently in, that, you know, their comfortable space, right? Yeah. Uh, we say, or think about it, you know, most people are walking around just dead, they're zombies. Yeah. I, they're not living, they're not experiencing what their purpose is, what they're here to do or what, whatever it is. I had two assignments for my children when they were growing up and I would tell them this, guys, forget all your schoolwork, you can fail every course, you can you know, bring Fs every day, but I want you guys to think about two things. I want you to figure out or find out why you were here. There is something unique to you that only you can do in this entire world. And my daughter was always the, the you know, she was always wild by dad, she's like, wow, really? Yeah, there is something that only you can do in this world. Now, others may be able to do the same thing, but they won't be able to do it quite the same way that you do it. Yeah. When you do it, you're going to get the wow effect from people. People are going to go, wow. Okay. And it's unique to you. Find out what that is. And the other thing I want you to do is, Wherever you go and you meet people, figure out how to improve their lives, how to leave them better off than when you met them. There is something you can do to always help people and, and, and help them to grow. So, and of course, with my focus on that, I never had to, had to deal with them, you know, bringing in failing grades. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and the conversation went on from there. But again, it's that focus, focus on, uh, you know, getting people to, realize what their purpose, what it is they're hardwired for. You know, mm -hmm. we're all hardwired to do something. And, you know, I say, when you are engaged doing that, here's a way to discover what you're hardwired for. You're gonna experience two things when you're doing it. You're gonna experience timelessness and effortlessness. So what do you mean by that? Well, 
When you're doing what you're hardwired for, you lose track of time. They will have to come and knock on your door and say, hey, it's, it's time to go home at six o'clock. I'm like, seriously? I, I, it feels like nine o'clock in the morning. And while you're doing it, it's not hard. It's not, it's not difficult. You know, it, it just flows. And your, your mind is just flowing about it. And, and the creative ideas are just flowing. When you're experiencing those two things, Bodhi, I tell you, you have, you have cracked the code on what it is you're hardwired for. Purpose. Yeah. Purpose, now, absolutely. I, I, I've found it interesting the past couple of years of really studying like task versus people orientation. And I think you talking about that zombie mentality, people get stuck in that task orientation of just doing the job, getting it done. But when you bring in that people aspect, that nurture mentality, that love, that's when you can really get somebody to think and dig deep within themselves and really find that purpose because somebody's invested in them now. And I think too many times it's just, you come through, you're another name you go through on the conveyor belt, you get them out. But when you have that, you know, we, we talked about Mr. Ryan and Mr. Burton and all these teachers that we've had and, you know, drill sergeants, that's the person who, you know, sometimes can pull that out of you. And I think that's leadership's so broad where you can ask 10,000 people what their definition is and you're gonna get 10,000 different answers. But I think that love often goes overlooked with leadership. So I think it was fantastic that you brought that up in your book because I really do think it has a lot more value. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, for the majority of people, you really can't blame them. You know, they get stuck in this mode, right? People have to pay bills. Yeah. You got to pay the mortgage. You got to pay the cell phone bill, the car bill and all these things. So it's doing something that generates income so that they can do these things. But in doing that, they've lost themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there is no creativity there. There is no uh, uh, innovation. And they're just checking the blocks so they get that paycheck and do those, do what they have to do. And so my, the other conversation that I would have with people is, you know, once you find what you're hardwired for and you are doing it, okay, you can make an income from it. Mm-hmm. And, and, but this is where it becomes difficult, right? So how, how, how do you balance that? Well, I say this there's always room for one more good person. So just imagine, Bodhi, you own a basketball team, okay? And Dream you, of you mine. Set up, <laughs> you have set up your squad, your coaching staff, your, your, your budget, everything is all set for the season. And you're sitting at home on a Sunday afternoon, listening to music. You're, you're very pleased with yourself that uh, you know, everything's going the way you want. Your doorbell rings. And you tell the butler, hey, I got this. You know, continue doing what you're doing. And you waltz over to the door in your house robe. And you open it. And Michael Jordan says, Bodie, I want to play on your team. What do you do? He's, okay. a, tar- he's a Tar Heel. He's got a spot on my team. But... <laughs> I tell you what you do. You are going to make room for him. Okay? Yeah, it's true. You're squad and your budget is all set. You are going to make room to put Michael Jordan on your team. Why is that? because he's good at what he does, okay? Yeah. And he's gotten good at what he does because he discovered that he's hardwired for that. He mm-hmm. brings creativity, he brings innovativeness to this activity. 
and you want some of that, okay? So because he's good at what he does, you, you, you will make room for him. And so it is with any one of the professions, politics, business, religion, you know, sports, entertainment, you name it. Yeah. yeah. And, and people will always make room for, you know, for you, uh, for one more good person on the team. So really the focus is to have us figure out what is it that you're hardwired for, okay? Because understand everything about you will be that. The books that you read, the programs that you watch, the friends that you keep conversations, everything is gonna be about that, okay? And when you are that immersed, you don't have a choice to be either the best or among the best at that. And as a result, they'll always make room for you. They will, they will fire somebody to put you on just because you are, you've got a good command of, of what that is. And so then you try to get the fear away from people. You know, unfortunately folks get comfortable. I remember at, uh, at the Landmine Warfare School, there was a, there was a etched in the, in the granite that said, you know, the point on the thermostat where it's neither hot nor cold is considered the comfort zone. Over here, we call it the dead zone, okay? If you find yourself being comfortable, get out. Do not sit in comfort. Comfort is bad because what happens when you're comfortable? You stop growing, you stop developing, you stop being creative, Complacency. You stop thinking about different ways of doing what it is you're doing. Comfort is not a good thing. You know, it is the dead zone. Yeah. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. That is one of my favorite sayings in life. Yeah. Comfort yeah, breeds complacency. That's uh, amazing stuff here. I mean, that's, that's awesome. If someone wants to go and check out your book, where can they find it? Yeah. So, um, it's available on Amazon, um, and also you can check out my website at uh, www.muddybootsleadership.com. And again, it's www.muddybootsleadership.com. And the book is also available uh, on, on Amazon. Um, if I can share a couple of other things with you. So with, with the book, um, I'm at the you know part of my career where um, they, they invited me to say, Dan, you need to retire. And I'm like, already? I, I can still do this, <laughs> right? Um, I have a, uh, I run a scholarship program in West Africa and Sierra Leone for girls. And it's been going on for about five years. And um, it's, it's an attempt to uh, get people to see that we don't have a choice, okay? Particularly in the African continent, we don't have a choice. We need to include everyone at the table, the discussion table, developing, coming up with ideas for everything from clean drinking water to drainage, to roads and bridges and education and medical, the list goes on and on and on, right? Um, and to give young girls the knowledge that they have a voice, that they, for them to understand that 
people are interested in knowing what you think, okay, and want to hear from you. So the scholarship helps to pay uh, the school tuition for you know one year at a time, and every year they have to to recompete and, uh, and 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 get selected and so on. So I have 23 girls in the program now. Something I'm very excited about. Um, eventually, uh, it, that program is going to be the theater for the school that uh, that I'm going to open, and the school is going to be patterned after you know it's going to use part of military as well as civilian uh, cohort uh, type mix. So uh, small groups, eight to 12 students with a small group leader, that's from military schools, I got that. Very effective uh, uh, way to, to, to you know, break up students. Um, school would be six days long, Monday to, through Saturday from eight in the morning to six in the evening and everything gets done in that time. So when they're released to their small group leaders, that's on their own time. Uh, mandatory every year, every student will take a sports, will do an arts and will study a language. That's mandatory every year in addition to your reading, writing, arithmetic and everything else. And it's gonna be built on a foundation of leadership. I like that. And then it grows from there. So those, that's, uh, I call it the Harris After Next Project. Yeah. And, I, uh, I told you I've been working with the Senegalese. So if you need me to do anything, let me know. I will. I will definitely, uh, I'll definitely ping you, uh, brother, for sure. Thank yeah. you. you. You mentioned muddybootsleadership.com. If you could uh, fill us in on what exactly is muddybootsleadership.com. Yeah, so Muddy Boots Leadership is the is the name of the, the leadership firm that uh, that I'm running, and it's it's to grow and develop managers into leaders. Again, uh, the there is always room for continue uh, continuous growth and development, right? Always, and it, it's how do managers, supervisors get the people on their team, the people that they're leading, okay? How do they get them to uh, produce at that elevated level, at that next level? So now uh, that's all I can say about it right now without mentioning because of legal reasons, all the other uh, pieces that go with it. But uh, suffice it to say, uh, Muddy Boots Leadership is the, is the firm where we grow and develop managers and uh, supervisors. I say, uh, we, we do it one step at a time. And, you know, muddy boots, because if you are leading effectively, your shoes, your boots are gonna be dirty. You cannot lead from behind your desk. You cannot lead from sitting in your office. There is something called critical time and place where as a leader, you always need to know what, what that is and place yourself there. Because if you don't, um, your objective is not going to, it's not gonna happen. You, the leader, act as a catalyst in a chemical you know, reaction, in a chemical equation to drive that reaction in the direction uh, that, that you needed to. So, well, you can't act as a catalyst if you're not in a pivotal, critical spot. And that's called time and place. And you need to be able to know it and find it and place yourself there constantly, constantly. So 
very effective. It worked very well for me. As a battalion commander, I got into the office early. Uh, I was like the Jackson Brown of the of the team. I told him, you know, first to come, last to leave, working for minimum wage, right? But uh, one of the things I would do when I rolled in was I walked around that entire armory. I'd go down into the basement. I'd go through the staff offices. And I'll see how people worked. I'll see where they left confidential information on their desks and instead of folded in file drawers and locked away. Uh, Supply cages, if I found them unlocked, I would open it, go in and and drag a lot of that equipment to my office. And, uh, you know, so many supply sergeants used to pump out. I mean, you have to buy it back. We call like the readiness group pool. So I remember this one story. My supply supply guy was like, "Sir, I'm missing. I think it was like three dozen APFT uniforms, a uh, bunch of things that were left unsecured." So I dragged it all up to my office, and uh, he wanted them back. And I said, "Well, you'll get it back. Yeah, it's a hundred push-ups, you know, or uh, you know, twenty bucks." And so, so I became uh, known. After a while, everybody started making sure that everything was locked down. But you wouldn't find those things out if you didn't walk around, if you didn't, you didn't know. So very, very effective. True. I, like, I like the name. I like the Muddy Boots <laughs> name. You. I like that. I think it's pretty fitting. Well, two, two final questions here for you. First, other than your book, what is a book that you recommend to somebody for leadership? Hmm. Well, I tell you, the Bible is one, and uh, you'd have to think of how you'd make those connections. But you know, uh, as a text, right? As a text, it's all about people, and you are going to encounter people in all walks of life and in in every situation. So, if you really want to understand uh, that. Thing about people, uh, that's a that's a that's a great starting point. It's a great starting point. And um, there, oh gosh, there's so many, you know, others. I think you asked about two. Um, we have, without defining any particular book, I'll I'll, I'll put out this this perspective. We have many leadership books that talk about concepts, mm-hmm. the mechanics, the, the definitions, okay? Um, I would invite you to focus on books that focus on the develop, growth and development of the people, okay, of people, okay? Because it's always about, you know, and I think I have a line in the book there, you know, it's about people, stupid. You know, um, once you're able to unlock and, and, and get people in, in pointed in that direction that they need to be, understand you don't have to worry about anything else, you know? So if leadership is getting people to do what you want them to do without resorting to those things I talked about, then what is your purpose as the, as the boss, as the leader? You're not there to show them how to do their work. If you have you know, interviewed them correctly and have onboarded them correctly, they're not 
you know, your purpose is not to show them their work, right? They know how to do their jobs. So what is your purpose? Your purpose is resourcing, prioritizing, right? Where if they come to a fork in the road um, and they look over their you know, left shoulder and say, hey boss, what do you want, left or right? Okay, you, yep, let's go right, okay, and you keep moving. So you resource, you prioritize, and um, clear out those hurdles out of their way so that they continue to, uh, to do their work. You're not there to show them how to do their work. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's micromanaging and so on and so forth. Poor is the leader that thinks that that's their job. That's not, that's not what you're there for. Okay. So final question. Yes. I love asking guests this. 50 years from now, when someone mentions Daniel Harris, what do you want them to say about you? Uh, he was a lover of people. And he seeked to elevate the lives of people wherever he met them. That's, that's what I want them to remember. I like it. It's a good thing to be known for. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Thanks. well, sir, I can't thank you enough for taking time to be a guest here on our podcast today. Uh, one more time, if they would like to find out more about you, where can they go? Please, yes. Um, it's www.muddybootsleadership.com, all one word, uh, www.muddybootsleadership.com. And the book, On Guard, The Four Pillars of Leadership, is available on Amazon. And um, when you do buy it and read it, make sure that you leave me a review uh, because that, that helps. And again, that goes to my continuous growth and development. I get better uh, from your perspectives and your, your critiques, both positive and negative. So I look forward to that. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure having you here on the show, sir. Folks, make sure you tune in next week for another episode. That is going to conclude this one. The Chronicles of Daniel Harris here on the Shadows Podcast. Mm -hmm.